1: Good morning, witches. It is April 10th, 2023. It is Monday. I am Tanya, and this is the Witch Daily Show. Today's episode is brought to you by the magic of trees. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is, every moment is a fresh beginning by T.S. Eliot. So it is April 10th, which means it is my birthday, Woohoo! and I was a Monday baby. So this year must be a year where all of our birthdays are on the actual weekday we were born, which I think is really neat. Um, but yes, I just wanted to share. Okay, so what are we drinking today? We are drinking Freezer Spell, which is a lemon meringue type of tea. Um, it has... Uh, lemon and green tea and apple and orange and vanilla and creme and marigold, and it's just really lovely and naturally sweet and really just a winner. So I like to write down when I think a tea can be used magically. So if you go to uh, sipaspell.com, I should have a section of just magical teas. So what does this mean? Well, this means that, um, you know, when we do spell work, like we dress candles or make sachets or anything like that, sometimes we need an herbal blend, right? And that's what tea is. It's just herbal blends. So if I look at the ingredients and I go, okay, I see something here that I think can be used as a magical blend, I try to share that on the website. So this is one of those teas. So this is a really cool tea that you can be uh, use if you're looking to strengthen or awaken your spirituality and your power and let me kind of go through the logic of that with you first of all, we have apple um apple is kind of considered the mother of spirituality. We talked about that last week when we talked about apples and then we have citrus we have orange and lemon. both of these are uh considered like enlighteners they are bright. They wake you up. They make you see clearly. They, um, they're definitely known as these herbs or fruits that can open you up and wake you up, right? And then we have uh, vanilla, and vanilla is a very warm, mature, sophisticated uh, flavor, and so. With this combo, I just think it'd be a really great base to use for a spell where you are, again, awakening your spirituality and trying to beef up your power. Or maybe you're trying to see things more clearly and anything like that. I think this tea is a great uh, use for a uh, you know herbal blend. <clears throat> so this week we are talking about oranges. I think it's been a hot minute since we've talked about oranges. So this information comes to us from the new uh, gastronomy.com. So oranges, the golden apple of the ages. So if you think apples had like lore, oof, oof, hang on to your hat. Hang on to your hat. The orange. The orange has so much lore. So the actual origin of the orange fruit is ambiguous and elusive with a long and often hidden history behind it? It’s considered exotic, rare, expensive. Oranges were a luxury item, the fruit of emperors and kings. So coveted by the highest ranks of society, orange fruits became such a sign of opulence and the Renaissance that the quantity of oranges appearing on the banquet table measured the importance of the guests, as well as the wealth of the host. It wasn't until the 19th century that oranges reached the tables of the middle class, and later still, they became an accessible fruit of the community and the most popular cultivated fruit in the world. Ancient scholars believed oranges to be the golden apples of immortality stolen by Hercules, the fruit sacred to to Venus, goddess of love. So, The oranges look really, really popular in the Italian Renaissance. One of the most splendid, scientifically precise and decorative botanical works of the 17th century Europe is by Giovanni Ferrari, um, who basically was the first scientist dedicated to a complete uh, taxonic uh, study of citrus fruit varieties So it's just one of those beautiful kind of vintage, like, botanical works. And, um, again, oranges were very, very popular through the Italian Renaissance. We have paintings. We have drawings. We have sculptures. Um, Then we have Venus, the goddess of love, also played a crucial role in the origin of this story. In a bold reinvention of Ovid, Pontano recast the myth of death of uh, Adonis, when her lover is killed by a wild boar, and laid down in the shade of a group of laurel trees. Venus remembered Daphne, Apollo's first love, and changed the dead Adonis into an orange tree. She planted this tree in the garden of uh, Hesperides. I know I'm saying that wrong, and from that moment on, the golden apples. Or oranges became a sacred to her. So we see it in stories, we see it in artwork. Um, yeah, orange trees and their fruits, however, were unknown and unsung by ancient poets. Sour oranges seem to have been first introduced to Italy after the Arab conquest of Sicily in the 10th century. So, um, yeah, basically,, uh, the Arabs built an intricate system of underground irrigation channels that allowed citrus fruit to grow and prosper throughout the arid island. And then Sicily has a really strong uh, culture connected to the orange. Sicily, in particular, would identify with and capitalize on this orange symbolism. Indeed, the mythical associations flourished across the ages and would be exploited to the fullest by the orange industry, who astutely recognized that specific features of the island and its history, along with a distinctly regional pride of place, would be illustrated, packaged, and exported. So very cool, very fun. We love, we love an orange. All right, moving into some headlines. Uh, Witch, please, five times popular TV shows featured queer witches. I thought this would be a great um, segment, especially as a lot of queer people are currently under attack uh, in politics. It's nice to kind of go back and see... Uh, representation that like meant a lot to people growing up. I know for me personally, the first one on this list was really cool to see. And what's wild is um, I don't remember it being a big deal. Like for me, um, I was just kind of raised in a very gay accepting household. I won't even say environment because it probably stopped at the door. But within my home, um gay acceptance was like very normal so I didn't even realize like uh this is about Willow and Tara from Buffy um one of the first lesbian kisses ever on mainstream tv I don't even think I noticed I was watching Buffy and I think the first scene I ever saw actually the first scene of Buffy I ever saw was Tara and Willow kissing and um It was never a big deal, I guess. I never thought about it. I had been watching Buffy since I was at least 9 or 10. So, yeah. So, let's dig into this. First off, like I said, Willow and Tara from Buffy. More than 20 years later, we still can't get over the first lesbian kisses to ever appear on mainstream TV. The one between Buffy's quirky friend Willow and her lover Tara. Both of these amazing characters are powerful witches in the series, and a lot of their magic is connected to the emotional bond that they form with each other, a narrative uh, device that develops several interesting plot lines. And the representation of these two witches is made all more interesting by the fact that in the early 2000s, when the episode came out, seeing queer women on television was still largely taboo making the relationship between the pair a powerful instrument of, of subversion. So this is a great reminder of like how equality kind of works, right? So at this point in TV, like we had, like we were seeing gay men on TV, especially main characters on TV. We had, um, you know, like Will and Grace. We had Queer Eye. Like it was much more common to see gay men on TV uh, because it takes a while, right? It always starts – with men, and then it goes to women, and then it goes to, um, you know, people of color and things like that's kind of the fall of how these things work. So at this point, like we had gay men on mainstream TV, especially main characters, but we just hadn't had queer women. Okay, so speaking of our next on the list is Lafayette and Jesus from True Blood. Being the black, flamboyant, gender-bending cook in a town full of vampires, Lafayette Reynolds is one of the most memorable queer witches we've seen on television. Yes. His character shows how oftentimes witches of color on TV are constantly exploited and forced to perform magic for the benefit of others. The fact that Lafayette is a gay man in the American South only serves to reduce his agency even more. Enter Jesus Velasquez, the one character who treats Lafayette as the powerful black LGBTQ+, which he is. Then we have Mel from Charmed. So I was not a big lover of the Charmed reboot. Um, I remember when it first came out, I was like really like defending it against the haters. Like I was like, just anything new Charms good. Like da, 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 da. But then when you find out that like I mean, not to like go on my soapbox here. I really supported it. I I was big on supporting it, and I really was like, everyone needs to relax. This doesn't erase the original show. Like, you can just not watch the new one. Like, don't be, don't make a big deal about it. Um, But now, in retrospect, knowing that they really, um, the actors and the writers, and basically everyone involved in the reboot, really. gave the finger to the original. They talked poorly about it. They used talking trash about it in their advertising. Um and actually I watched it. I watched a few episodes and I actually found it less feminist than the original. Um, I felt like the original, the girls were always in control and always made the decisions on what they would do and when they would do it. And the new one, like the first episode, I'm just ranting. The first episode is literally a man tying these girls down and telling them how it's going to be. And I was like, ooh, I don't know how forward they think they're being. This isn't, oh, just not for me, not for me. But anyways... <laughs> After that rant, um, one thing we are seeing here is that Mel, the middle sister of the trio of witches, is, an op- is openly lesbian. Uh, very important uh, aspect of Mel. It, and then it, apparently it shows the parallels between her experience uh, as an LGBTQ person and as um, a witch. And now we have, let's see, last one. This is probably one of my absolute favorites, Ambrose and Prudence from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I absolutely love uh, the idea of Ambrose and the conception of Ambrose. Uh, The fact that these two badass characters in the series, uh, the black pansexual warlock Ambrose and the queer biracial witch Prudence, end up being together is one of the best parts of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Being a very old witch who has been studying the art for years, Ambrose is extremely knowledgeable in witchcraft and the person Sabrina always turns to for advice. Prudence is introduced as a mean antagonistic character, but turns out to be a stylish witch with a wicked tongue. Their scenes together are strong and sensual, so much so that fans feel they could carry their own show, and I agree. I think I would actually prefer it. <laughs> I um was very lukewarm about uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I don't think the character of Sabrina really did it for me, but oh man, if it was a show of just Ambrose and Prudence, I'd be so in. All right, witches, no one asked for that, but here we are. I'm going to throw this over to our moon correspondent, and after this break, we will talk
2: more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Monday, April 10th. The waning gibbous moon broadens its horizons in Sagittarius today. Here, the moon trines the sun. The sun is in the sign of its exaltation, Aries, and is feeling pretty good about gaining light. The trine to the moon boosts our moods and helps us to see the bright side of every equation. Make use of your glass half full mindset to set some optimistic goals for yourself. Sometimes just setting up some markers is all you need to get the ball rolling. Your Daily Moon Mantra is, begin with the end in mind. This has been your Daily Moon Mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you
3: are in charge of your own destiny. The Magic of Trees is not just a book on tree magic. It is about drawing on the strength of forests and tree energy to better connect with ourselves, other people, and the world around us. Each chapter reinforces meditations, spells, and rituals that will reconnect humanity with its roots at every stage of life. These practices take a hands-on approach to life and spiritual work. They lead to individual self-awareness and fulfillment through healthy natural practices. Plus, this text has the added benefit of fine-tuning spiritual tree connections which never stop growing. Find the magic of trees wherever books are sold.
1: (laughs) So we have a question from listener Rachel. Rachel says, Hey everyone, any tips on creating a grimoire to keep all of my spells and info? This will be my first one. So Kiki, I think this was Kiki's first ever book. It is now currently um, out of print. Uh, But Kiki wrote a book where she actually went over how to approach your first ever grimoire. Um, So, yeah, this is super exciting. But I hate to bring on a guest and then take over. But before we actually get into creating a grimoire, um, I actually wanted to go into the history and uh, some
4: misinformation about grimoires and Book of Shadows. I I need to hear this, though. I'm going to take notes for the next edition of Eight Extraordinary Days.
1: Yes. So this is actually something I wrote uh, when I was doing private classes. Uh, So I've actually have only ever had one, I think one or two students who have actually taken the course this information comes from. Um, But for those listening, I, you know, I was just telling Kiki uh, before we started recording that, like, I do try to keep it really light and fun. um, But like my passion is research and uh, like truth, you know? So uh, when I was putting together my class, I knew I had to have a class on terminology for witchcraft. Right. But I was like, Oh, like, what do you pick? Do you do the same thing every book does and go, okay, what's a wand? What's a cauldron? What's um, a pentagram, you know? And then I was like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So, I created a terminology class purely based off words that we think we know what they mean, but we're actually all very incorrect. <laughs> 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 I thought that's a more fun way to go about it. So I have a whole class on, oh, you think you know what this is. <laughs> LOL, everyone just made it up. So um, one of those is Grimoire versus Book of Shadows. So before we um, dig in, Kiki, uh, can I, like, if you don't mind, can I ask you kind of your, like, what you think um, the difference is between a grimoire and a book of
4: shadows? Yes, sure. Um, and it's so, I'm so glad that this is the first thing that we're we're talking about. Because before we actually got on the phone and started talking, I was like, how do I define the difference between the two? And honestly, I'm at the point in my life where I think that any traditional definitions of those two terms can just be thrown out the window. And that's my personal belief, because I think that they've kind of evolved into an interchangeable term for modern practitioners of witchcraft and magic. But that being said, I will tell you that the the definitions I have of them, and I can't wait to see if, if I get this question right or wrong. Uh, the book of shadows is a collection of magical workings. It's something unique to the creator. Um, it's, I personally think of it as a collection of a witch's work. A grimoire is said to be a collection of notes and resources. It's something that gives additional references and information, um, for, for studying. I I don't know. When I think of the two, I think of book, book of shadows as something that not only do I connect it with charmed because you know me and charmed but I right I think of the book of shadows the traditional definition of a book of shadows would be this is like a a book that I bring to ritual and I open it up and I have everything I need to perform a magical spell a, a ritual you know for an esbat and when I think of grimoire I almost think of like a Like a a witch's recipe book. Now, like I said, those were the definitions that I had that were very traditional. But at this point in time, I just kind of go, meh. I just call it a book of shadows. And and, and all of the above can go in it.
1: So it's funny. Um, I essentially have exactly what you put for what people typically say. Except I have it backwards. Where (gasps) you typically, because we're all just making it up. (laughs) <laughs> I, I have you frequently come across the question what is the difference between a grimoire and a book of shadows and the answer will vary but some will say a grimoire or book of shadows is information holding like correspondences and information whereas a book of shadows acts more as a personal uh, diary journal or, interpre- or interpretation um, so what's wild is we're so off base like completely. So, are you ready to dig into uh, the history of the Grimoire?
4: Please teach me. <laughs> I need to know.
1: <laughs> and there's a wonderful book. If uh, for everyone listening, if you find the subject more interesting, I also have uh, further reading. If you like the subject, yes. So, since people have developed the ability to write, they have been documenting information. Some of the earliest writings are thousands of years old. Uh, ancient Middle East, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Iran, um, and this includes, like, illustrations and pictographs. So, written content developed over years, especially after the first printing press by Johann Gutenberg. Uh, Like, after 1440, books started to become more widely available, right? And this included books on magic. And some of these books were actually some of the first to be created and distributed to a broader audience. So these things were really kind of hard to find. But then once the printing press came up, everyone's like, oh, books, books, books. And a lot of these books had to do with magic. Now, what do we know about the Roman Catholics? (laughs) They don't like that. They don't want you fucking around, you know, So, (laughs) So at all. So the Roman Catholic uh, um, Inquisition became very involved at this point because they did not want ideas being spread that did not align with their beliefs. So they started disciplining and even executing people who owned types of books that did not align with their beliefs. And we know from history, they were very brutal people. So, however, as we know from the world... Just because you say people can't do something doesn't mean they won't find a way. So books started to be printed, and those who were owning these books that were essentially starting to become illegal um, were hiding them and just really taking care of them carefully. So Owen Davies, uh, he writes uh, about history of magic, witchcraft, and popular medicine. He's a professor of social history at the University of uh, Hertfordshire. And he wrote an incredible book. So if you find this subject interesting, he wrote the book Grimoire's A History of Magical Books. And his explanation of what a grimoire is, is absolutely incredible. So it's all about once you know what the word grimoire is and its etymology, literally anytime anyone asks the question, what is a grimoire versus a Book of Shadows, just knowing where the word grimoire comes from, you'll know the answer. So the word grimoire is derived likely from the French gramire, uh, which originally referred to any work written in Latin. So by the 18th century, it was being widely used in France to refer to magic books because of The um, Romans, again, they did not want these books being distributed. So the books that weren't being circulated, the books that weren't being distributed and weren't being translated were books on magic. So they were the last books being left in Latin. So people were starting to refer to any book written in Latin as Gramir. So because of these restrictions, a lot of the books being left in Latin were magical works. And it's actually really funny. it actually became a turn of phrase or a figure of speech for anything that was just difficult to understand. So you know how sometimes we're like, oh, this might as well be hieroglyphics. Like if you show someone algebra and they just don't know fractions, they're like this might as well be like you know, hieroglyphics. That is what people would say using the word, Uh, um, grimoire so if you handed someone back in this day a book that they didn't understand or something they didn't understand they had to turn a phrase that this is like a grimoire to me because it's like this is like it's written in latin wow so it was only the isn't this wild it was only in the 19th century with uh the educated resurgence of interest in the occult that um these books were, you know, started to be translated. And then the uh, word grimoire started to be entered into like English usage. So right off the bat, that's what a grimoire is historically. Historically, a grimoire would be any book written in Latin, but due to history, it got to a point where the only books left in Latin were books on magic. So At this point, I think it's worth mentioning Francis Barrett, who in 1801 published The Magus. Uh, This consisted of three books contained in one single volume. Uh, His goal was to modernize information from the ancient and obscure texts like the grimoires and make them more accessible. So he helped to assist in the resurgence of magical theories and beliefs. And his concept of updating ancient traditions and folklore is most likely where the idea of customizing your grimoire probably originated from. So, okay, so now we're past the Romans, we're past Francis Barrett, and now we're about to hit the Golden Dawn era, the, o- the, o- the OTO era. So, um, and if you've noticed, we have not mentioned a Book of Shadows whatsoever yet
4: (laughs) right
1: so around the late 1800s and early 1900s english occultists and magical groups began to assemble like the hermetic order of the golden dawn the oto uh alistair crowley is one of the most famous and influential members of the latter And they gathered and researched historical magical practices and incorporated them into their own rituals and ceremonies. And this is very, very common. This was being done way before uh, the Golden Dawn and the OTO with the Freemasons. And I could get into that, but I will not. Um, But this is where we're starting to see kind of ritual, these groups come together for ritual and magical purposes. Now, uh, yeah, so after this point, we end up getting to Wicca, right? Because Wicca, um, Wicca's beliefs are highly, highly taken from uh, these ceremonial practices like Golden Dawn and OTO. So now we're pa- Now we're in the 1900s-ish because it's unsure of exactly when Wicca kind of like started for all for else. Um, but a lot of their concepts and ideas found their way into modern Wiccan beliefs, so at this point, we still have grimoires, right? And at this point, because of the history, the language, a grimoire is known as a compilation of magical ideas and occult topics, such as herb use, ritual practice, invocation, elements, and other magical topics. Now, this is where we get to 1950. I promise we're almost done, because that's really where our magical history ends. Um, in 1951... Uh, England repealed the last of their witchcraft laws. And that's where Gerald Gardner kind of emerged uh, to share Wicca with the world. And he published Witchcraft Today, which I believe was a periodic. I don't know if it was a book or I actually think it was a uh, like a magazine. Do you know? i will to look for you right now. Yeah. Can you look? I'm pretty sure it's a magazine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he. Uh, Because, again, English, English, England repealed the witchcraft laws, and they brought, uh, and so Gerald Gardner, along with his high priestess, Doreen Valente, uh, came out and, like, showed Wicca to the world. Now, Gardner had his own grimoire, where he kept his information regarding rituals and beliefs, and he wanted to compile all of this knowledge that he had created himself, instead of um, relying on information from other sources. Now, this is where hang on to your hat, okay? <laughs> so he died because you know, <laughs> after his death, I don't know how to nicely say someone died after his death, <laughs> some early work of his um was discovered by Doreen, and he had a book called "Ye Book of ye Art Magical," because the Wiccans love using old fashioned words um and like legit, they just liked it. It didn't really come from anywhere, so like. Uh, He had this unfinished work and Doreen Valente found it and she wrote an article, which I believe is in witchcraft today, the, uh, you know, occult magazine, she wrote an article um, and she was saying that Gardner was thinking that he had told her Gardner told Valente that he had been considering calling his personal book of magic, a book of shadows. So the members of his original coven used his Book of Shadows and tried to keep it secret and hidden to those who were not initiated, which is still a really popular thing to do in Wicca. So A Book of Shadows um, was Gerald Gardner's personal Book of Shadows. And in honor of that, Wiccans continued to call their personal works Books of Shadows.
4: That was so informative. Oh, my God. Wild, so yeah, so <sighs> it it
1: really is considered kind of a Wiccan thing. Um, so they're you know they're probably because like Wiccans um, and their traditional traditional witchcraft, which is the idea of lineage and initiation. Uh, they really like their stuff to remain their stuff. Which fair, I wouldn't be shocked if your traditional witches maybe didn't love that. Like everyone called their. Um, things book of shadows, because that's kind of their thing. Uh, and I'm just assuming just kind of based off of like what I know about those practices. Um, but yeah, so if we go by all of that information and we were to create our own definitions, we would say a grimoire is any magical book or any book of magical information and a book of shadows is, um, a book of magical information that was kept in um, Gardnerian Wicca.
4: Wow. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love it. And I kind of always knew that Book of Shadows is is obviously it's a a modern term. Nobody in, um, you know, ancient Egypt was, you know, developing a Book of Shadows. Um, Grimoire is that term, that historical term but just having that information, who that's mind-blowing. I, I would love to hear how the listeners, what what the listeners use. What do they say? And what do you say, Tanya?
1: So you know what's so wild is because I was raised, as you were, we were raised on the good old Book of Charmed. <laughs> <laughs> so even, so even, even knowing this, and, and I've known this, And I've been preaching this to, like, the two whole people who have taken my class. Um, Knowing this information, and while I personally prefer grimoire, I still say Book of Shadows because that's what I'm accustomed to. Mm. But I would like to break that because I, I also... I love. I think the history of the word grimoire is really neat, and I like that it became. It's so steeped in history and magical oppression and um, turns of phrase. I love when I learn about uh, like turns of phrases from other cultures. It feels really fun and special, um, and it just seems like a. And then it's connected to the Magus, which is like known of one of the most important kind of books out there on like ancient um, magic. Uh, and like occultism, it just—it's—it's—it's a—it's a more rich word to me. Mm. I think.
4: I think you've convinced me too. I, I and I think that we just come from the same. You're right. We're both from. You know. I grew up with the at Hall- the Halliwell sisters, and I, I'm so used to saying Book of Shadows, but when you look at it that way, Grimoire is such a a complex word with history. And it sounds magical to say it's, it's a, it's a magical word in itself. Um, It really is. mm, I love it. I love it. You could always say your, 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 your grimoire book of shadows. Hey, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's basically about breaking the habit. Wow. Interesting. I, I love it. I love it. That's very wonderful information uh, to know that history and Owen Davies is an incredible academic author. Um, I'm totally going to order that book because, um, yeah, that just, you know, and, and, and knowing that history makes the practice of doing it yourself feel like you're part of something grand, something bigger. Um, this is something that magical people and those who are, you know, intrigued and fascinated by the esoteric world and the magical world and the world of witchcraft and, you know, Wicca, um, this, it just, it, it's, it's inspiring. I guess that's all I have to say about that. It's inspiring. All
1: right, witches. We are wrapping up this episode of the Witch Daily Show. I want to give a shout out to listener Lauren Wilson. Lauren, you opulent, noble mongoose. Christina Gerritsen. Christina, you glittery, thoughtful werewolf. Jennifer Demucci, Jennifer, you opulent, beautiful muskox. And finally, Lilith. Lilith, you magical avant-garde Valkyrie queen. Thank you for so much for being Patreon supporters. I really, really appreciate it. Alright, so our card pulled today from the Buffy Tarot is the Seven of Skies. Well, 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 if it isn't the embodiment of the faithful, degenerate son of chaos. Like Ethan Rain, the Seven of Skies sweeps into your reading as an omen of betrayal, fraud, and deception. If you are considering engaging in unethical behavior, just know you are likely to be discovered. If you find yourself wondering whether you're on the receiving end of shenanigans, this card confirms it. Alright, witches. That's all I've got for you today. Don't forget any books, decks, headlines, sources, anything we reference today can be found in the podcast episode description or witchpod.com and
0: we will talk again tomorrow. Witches we hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence links for this week's episodes our website patreon along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com one stop for everything we talk about now take one more deep breath
3: I had an abortion when I was 15 years old in my home state of Arizona in 1994. It was not a decision that I made lightly, but I have never for one moment doubted that it was the right decision for me. But so much has changed in Arizona and many other states since then. If I were that same 15-year-old in Arizona today legally, I would have to get parental consent. I would be forced to undergo a medically unnecessary ultrasound, go to a state-mandated in-person counseling session designed solely to shame me into changing my mind, and then take a state-mandated 24-hour time out to make sure I really know what I wanted. And finally, I would be forced to give the state a reason why. Well, here is mine. It is my body, not the state's. Women and their doctors are the ones that are in the best position to make informed decisions about what is best for them no one else. No bill that criminalizes abortion will stop anyone from making this incredibly painful decision. These bans will not stop abortion from happening. But they will drive women and girls and people into the shadows, which is what this has always been about, shaming and controlling women's bodies. In the week after I shared my story on my show, women were coming up to me in the street, in the supermarket, at my gym, with tears in their eyes, thanking me for my bravery. But the word brave, didn't sit right with me. Why is it brave to speak to an experience that millions of people around the world throughout history have gone through? And then I realized it is considered brave because as women we have been taught to feel shame about our bodies since birth. I am so sad that we have to sit here in front of a row of politicians and give deeply personal statements because the why doesn't matter, it should not matter. I am a human being that deserves autonomy in this country that calls itself free, and choices that a human being makes about their own bodies should not be legislated by strangers who can't possibly know or understand each individual circumstances or beliefs. I'm here today to help destigmatize a legitimate medical procedure and continue to encourage women not to allow themselves to be shamed for their choices. And finally, I am here today for my two little girls, Bertie and Cricket. My dream for them is that they will live in a world in which women are truly equal with complete control over their own reproductive health. That is the dream I hold for all people, regardless of their privilege or parents or what state they live in. That dream is slipping further and further from reality with every ban passed. I hope that you, our elected leaders, can help us reverse the tide. Thank you, I look forward to today's discussion.